Hello and welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman and joining me today is Linda Carlisle. It's Monday, October 9th, 2023, and we have some great stories for you. In this episode, we will talk about the Nobel Prizes in Physics and Chemistry, awarded for significant discoveries in nanophysics and quantum mechanics. The devastating earthquake in Afghanistan causing extensive damage and casualties. The impact of strikes on employment data in the September jobs report in the United States. Ukrainian president's solidarity with Israel amidst ongoing war and increase in Russian drone attacks. And the Federal Reserve's difficult decision on whether to raise interest rates at its next policy meeting. Story number one. According to the New York Times, The Nobel Prizes in Physics and Chemistry were recently awarded to scientists who made significant discoveries in the field of nanophysics and quantum mechanics. These awards highlight the importance of understanding processes that occur on a scale much smaller than what humans typically experience. The Physics Prize recognized scientists who developed a technique to track the movements of electrons in a chemical reaction using bursts of laser light. The Chemistry Prize went to scientists who learned how to assemble atoms into quantum dots, which have no dimension. These achievements serve as a reminder of the vast difference between the scale at which important natural processes occur and the scale of everyday human affairs. Should make you stop and think, right? The scale of the universe is mind-boggling. We're talking about the tiniest particles and the vastness of the cosmos all in the same breath. It's like trying to compare the size of an atom to the distance between New York and Los Angeles. And yet these Nobel Prize winners have managed to make groundbreaking discoveries at both ends of the spectrum. It's a testament to the power of human curiosity and scientific ingenuity. These discoveries in nanophysics and quantum dots, they seem abstract, but they have profound implications for our understanding of the universe. We're looking at the building blocks of everything, And it's happening on a scale that's almost beyond comprehension. These aren't just theoretical musings. We're talking about potentially transformative technologies down the line. Imagine if we could manipulate atoms to create materials with properties we've only dreamed of. Or using these ultra-fast lasers to study chemical reactions in real time. The possibilities are endless. Indeed. It's fascinating and a little humbling. It's like we're standing at the edge of a vast ocean of knowledge, dipping our toes in. Richard Feynman's proclamation, there's plenty of space at the bottom, has never felt more relevant. True. And you know what's even more interesting? We're so stuck in the middle of these cosmic scales. We're neither infinitesimally small nor incomprehensibly large. But we're making strides in understanding both extremes. It's like we've got one foot in the quantum world and one in the cosmos. That's a beautiful metaphor, Mark. Maybe it's a reminder that we're a part of this universe, no matter how vast or tiny it may seem. We're not just observers. We're participants in this grand cosmic play. Story number two. A powerful earthquake in western Afghanistan, as reported by Al Jazeera, has caused extensive damage and casualties. The Taliban has reported that over 2,000 people were killed and nearly 10,000 injured, with thousands of homes destroyed. Rescue efforts are underway, with teams from the military and non-profit organizations assisting. Aid groups have provided medical tents, supplies, and essential items to help those affected. Would you believe it, Linda? The devastation caused by those earthquakes in Afghanistan is just dot 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 IT quote S, just mind-boggling. The sheer scale of destruction and the loss of life. I mean, 2,053 people dead, nearly 10,000 injured. It's hard to even comprehend. It's absolutely heartbreaking, Mark. 
the images of men digging through rubble with their bare hands, trying to find survivors, it's a poignant reminder of how unpredictable and devastating natural disasters can be, particularly in regions that are already grappling with numerous challenges. Right, right. And you know, it's in these moments of crisis that organizations like the Red Crescent, the International Organization for Migration, Doctors Without Borders, and UNICEF really step up. I mean, their response has been phenomenal. Yes, Mark. The role of these organizations in providing immediate relief and support cannot be overstated. For instance, the Red Crescent has not only been involved in rescue efforts, but they've also set up a temporary camp for those displaced by the earthquakes. Similarly, the International Organization for Migration has deployed ambulances, doctors, and support counselors to the regional hospital. That's... that's just incredible, Linda. And what about Doctors Without Borders? They're known for their quick response to crises, aren't they? In this case, they've set up five medical tents at Herat Regional Hospital to accommodate up to 80 patients, and they've already treated more than 300 patients. These organizations are literally a lifeline for communities during such disasters. And UNICEF too, right? They've dispatched supplies, including winter clothes and blankets. I mean, it's still cold out there. People need these basic necessities. And it's also worth noting the World Food Program's efforts. They were already on the ground with essential items. The collaboration between these organizations is essential in ensuring that aid reaches those who need it the most. Right, right. But Linda, these organizations, they must face some challenges, right? I mean, it's not easy delivering aid in a crisis situation. The challenges are immense, from logistical issues to ensuring the safety of their staff. But these organizations have shown time and again their resilience and adaptability in the face of adversity. They continually evolve their strategies to ensure that they're able to provide help where it's most needed. That's... that's truly commendable, Linda, and important work, too. I mean, their response to these crises not only saves lives, but also helps communities begin the long process of rebuilding. Yes, Mark. And as we've seen in the past... The impact of their work often extends beyond immediate relief. It goes on to shape recovery and rebuilding efforts, making a lasting difference in the lives of those affected by such calamities. Story number three. According to CNN, the September jobs report in the United States does not include striking workers in its employment data. The report is based on two surveys, one of which asks employers to report the number of workers based on payroll records. If striking workers earn any pay during the reference period, even for just an hour, they are counted as employed. However, if the strike continues into the next month, they will not be counted as employed in the subsequent jobs report. The impact of strikes can be seen in some industry data, but for contract workers or freelancers, the impact may not be visible. The other survey used to calculate the unemployment rate does capture the impact of strikes on contractors and freelancers. Overall, the employment data in the jobs report does not fully reflect the number of workers involved in strikes, as reported by CNN. When I first read the report, I thought, wow, this is a surprising aspect of the jobs data that isn't commonly discussed. You know, the impact of strikes on the employment figures. It's fascinating to see how the Bureau of Labor Statistics handles it, with their dual survey system. Yes, it's indeed an interesting point, Mark. But, you know... I find it somehow misleading as well. It appears that the way we're measuring employment status can potentially obscure the real picture. For instance, let's say, 
A striking worker who manages to earn some money by driving for Uber is considered employed. But isn't that a distortion of their professional status? Well, Linda, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think it's as clear-cut as that. The Bureau has to have some sort of baseline, some standard to determine who is employed and who isn't. And earning income, even through a gig like Uber, does technically mean they're employed, doesn't it? It might not be their preferred job, but it's a job nonetheless. I understand your point, Mark, but I beg to differ. We should remember that these people are on strike for a reason, often demanding better working conditions or higher wages. Labeling them as employed because they found a temporary and possibly less rewarding job isn't reflective of the overall labor market health. Hmm. So you're suggesting that we need a more nuanced approach to account for these fine distinctions. But I think it's also important to consider the practicality and feasibility of having such detailed metrics. It could be, uh, quite challenging for the Bureau to track every single employment scenario. Absolutely. I agree it would be complex. But the quality and reliability of data should not be compromised for the sake of simplicity. And as technology advances, I believe we'll be able to handle such complexities, ensuring that our understanding of employment status is as accurate as possible. Story number four. According to The Guardian, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky expressed solidarity with Israel during a phone call with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Zelensky compared Israel's right to self-defense with the ongoing war in Ukraine and announced the establishment of an operational headquarters to aid Ukrainians in Israel. Two Ukrainian women were among the victims of a recent attack by Hamas in Israel. Ukraine's Air Force anticipates an increase in Russian drone attacks this winter. Rocket strikes and attacks on the Kherson region have resulted in injuries and damage to infrastructure. A deadly airstrike in the village of Hroza is under investigation. Ukrainian armed forces claim that 580 Russian troops were killed in the past day, bringing the total losses since the start of the war to 282,280. Poland's president suggests that the current conflict between Hamas and Israel diverts attention from Russia's aggression in Ukraine. A United Russia Party official was killed in a car explosion in the Russian-held town of Novokakovka. Former Russian leader Dmitry Medvedev called for a civil war in the U.S. Train traffic between North Korea and Russia has significantly increased, indicating a potential transfer of arms, as reported by The Guardian. Are we looking at a new era of diplomacy, Linda? With Zelensky showing solidarity with Israel and standing up against the invasion, it's clear that this war isn't just about Ukraine and Russia anymore. It's about geopolitics, power balances, and how nations interact on the global stage. It's an intricate web of relationships and alliances. And it's not just about the immediate players in the conflict. Other countries, like Israel in this case, play a significant role as well. Netanyahu's stance, for instance, not supplying weapons but sending humanitarian aid, shows a nuanced approach. Uh right, Linda. And it's... it's not about taking sides, but about supporting peace and stability. I mean, let's not forget, this has huge human consequences. We're talking about thousands of Ukrainian refugees fleeing to Israel, and unfortunately some casualties, too. The human impact is tremendous, and often overlooked. It's a reminder of why diplomacy and negotiations are so crucial in these scenarios. And, well, the role of powerful nations becomes even more important. They can use their influence to steer the direction of the conflict, push for peaceful resolutions. Yeah, Linda, you hit the nail on the head. It's all interconnected. Like the Cuban Missile Crisis, or the Israel-Palestine conflict, or the current situation in North Korea. 
each of these events is shaped by international diplomacy, or the lack thereof. We can't underestimate the influence of these diplomatic relationships. Yes, Mark. And it's not just about conflict management, it's about conflict prevention, too. Diplomatic relationships can help identify potential issues before they escalate into full-blown conflicts, but it requires transparency, communication, and mutual respect among nations. And that's something we can all strive for. Story number five. The Federal Reserve is facing a difficult decision on whether to raise interest rates at its next policy meeting, as reported by CNN. Some officials believe that further rate increases are necessary to combat inflation, while others argue that the rate tightening already implemented will be sufficient. The division among Fed officials reflects the uncertainties surrounding the economy's future, including the impact of the labor market, bond market sell-off, and student loan repayments. However, differing opinions within the Fed are seen as a positive feature, preventing groupthink and promoting a healthy debate. While a dissenting opinion could be significant, it is unlikely that multiple officials will dissent. The voting members of the Federal Open Market Committee, which sets monetary policy, change each year. The decision on interest rates will be closely watched by investors, with a majority currently predicting that rates will remain steady. Tell you what, Linda, this whole situation with the Federal Reserve is like a classic chess game. Every move they make, every strategy they deploy, has a ripple effect on our economy. Now, some folks at the Fed are saying that we've done enough to tame inflation, while others are adamant that we need to raise interest rates even more. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? I mean, just as San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly mentioned, if we see a cooling labor market and inflation heading back to target, there might be an argument for keeping interest rates steady and letting the effects of policy continue to do their work. Yeah, it's like walking on a tightrope. And to complicate matters, we've got the bond market sell-off to consider. It could put just enough of a squeeze on the economy to pull inflation down. But it's like predicting the weather, huh? You really can't be sure. It's hard to predict the outcome accurately. I mean, with the resumption of student loan repayments this month, we don't know how much this will weigh on spending. And all these divergent perspectives within the Fed, it does reflect the complexities and uncertainties they have to deal with. It's like trying to navigate a ship in stormy weather. You've got to keep adjusting the sails. The fact that the Fed officials have different opinions is not a bad thing. It shows that they're looking at the situation from different angles. We all know what they say about opinions. They're like belly buttons. Everyone has one. True, Mark. And it's interesting to see how these opinions might shift next year when the voting members at the FOMC change. We might have some new perspectives in the mix, which could bring fresh insights into these ongoing discussions. Change is the only constant, as they say. Just gotta keep an eye on how things unfold. But whatever happens, I reckon it's gonna be one heck of a ride. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.